Good morning, everyone. Very, very good to see you. I'm Dan Seitz, senior pastor here at the church. We have a great Jesus story to look at this morning. You came on a good, good morning. Let's pray as we continue on with the service. Dear Father, thank you that you have not left us to make our own pilgrimages of faith on our own steam, but you have given us your own person, your own spirit. And Lord, you poured out your spirit into us when we first believed and were baptized, and you continue to supply the spirit as we lean in and as we listen. So that's what we aim to do right now. We aim to lean in and listen so that we can be refilled by you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, if you have your own Bible with you today, open it up, if you would, to Luke chapter 13. Our story, again, it is a great one. It's found in verses 10 through 17. You can also find the passage written out on your message notes. Please follow along as I read. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. God's word for us today. With that first word now, Luke indicates that the scene has changed. Jesus is now in a synagogue, and Jesus has not been in a synagogue since the very beginning of his ministry. And in that, this case, that case, it was his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And in that famous, famous sermon, which started out so promising, but which nearly ended in de Defenestration. That's my son's favorite word right now, by the way. Defenestration. It means the act of throwing someone out of a window. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know we had a word for that? We would expect it in German, wouldn't we? But we have it in English. In Jesus' case, it was a cliff rather than a window, but same difference. Anyway, in this explosive debut sermon, Jesus says that his job as Messiah is, Luke 4, 18, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are 
oppressed. And here in our story, we see Jesus fulfilling his own mission statement because here he does exactly like he promised to do. He liberates. And I think that because this story so closely matches Jesus' own declaration of mission, it actually has heightened importance for us as a church as we come to deeper and deeper understanding of our own mission as a church, as Jesus' followers. Well, in verse 10, Luke says that Jesus is teaching, he's giving a sermon, and among the worshipers is a woman with a disabling spirit. And this is one that she's had for 18 years. 13 times in the Gospels, people are described as demon-possessed. It's actually one word in the Greek. But interestingly enough, Jesus or, uh, Luke does not use that word here. And this woman's spiritual condition is actually not like that poor guy in Mark 5. You might remember that story, this guy who just terrified the neighbors by haunting the graveyard and, and shrieking and, and cutting himself with stones. Jesus heals that guy. But even though she's not that, she is spiritually infected. You could say she's like a laptop with a virus, and this malevolent spirit has brought on a, a horrible medical condition, resulted in her being stooped over. And it's possible that the Greek here means that she's bent over completely. And this is why one Bible version translates the verse this way. She was bent double and could not straighten herself. For 18 years, she's been like this. And she's actually inspiring because she keeps coming to church. Despite the embarrassment maybe she feels over her condition. But then in verse 12, something beautiful happens. When Jesus spots this woman, without even waiting for the service to be over, interrupting his own sermon, he calls her over to him. And just like that, he sweeps her clean of this unwholesome force, saying to her in verse 12, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And in a flash, she is sprung. She is unshackled from this filthy spirit, and we shouldn't be surprised at all. Again, because back in Nazareth, Jesus described his purpose the, person for, the reason for his existence as setting at liberty those who are oppressed. And here he's done it in grand fashion. And then in verse 13, Luke tells us that Jesus does something that he does over and over and over again uh, in his life and ministry. He places his hands on this woman and immediately... Luke says, she's made straight. Once bent 90 degrees, she now stands as straight as a ballerina, at which point she begins to glorify God. Well, the synagogue ruler ain't happy 
about this. He does not like what he's seeing. You see, his job was to run the meetings. And this meeting has turned an unexpected corner. And Luke describes him as indignant. He's furious about this. And I think this next detail is really, really interesting. In verse 14, we learn that the synagogue ruler does not dress down Jesus. The synagogue ruler dresses down the crowd. He blasts them. For as he says, coming on the Sabbath to be healed. But of course, there's actually no indication that they came to be healed. In fact, there's no indication that the woman herself came to be healed. They came to church. So I read this as cowardly avoidance. And what's more, I read his reference to the Sabbath as a smokescreen. More on that in a minute. Again, the ruler's beef is with Jesus. He's the one who disrupted the status quo, and yet he takes out his fury on the little people. People in power sometimes do this, don't they? Their position threatened. Somebody in the organization just looks a little bit too good. Their ego bruised. How do they react? By pounding away at a proxy. And friends, fellow Jesus followers, if we have power, power in the workplace, power at the office, power at school, power at the classroom, we should be on guard against this kind of indirect retaliation when challenged. And we should be, as leaders, wherever we're positioned, we should seek to be so confident in Jesus, so secure in his love for us, his approval of us as his sons and daughters, that we can actually take a slight without it sending us into fury against another person, especially against somebody smaller. But anyway, verse 15, Jesus fires back. He says, you hypocrites. Why the plural? I presume because some of the worshipers in the room have lined up behind the synagogue ruler. And if you think about it, there's actually no surprise here that some people would do that. Because after all, bullies and big talkers always attract a following, don't they? There's something about the strong man that electrifies us. And as human beings, we say we admire humility, maybe in the mind, but not in the gut, do we? In the gut, we love big, brash, self-aggrandizing personalities. And this is confirmed everywhere we look. We see it in politics. We see it in sports. We also see it in churches among pastors, the worst example of it. And that's one reason why humility is so hard. When we walk low to the ground, people are very happy to step on us. They really are. But as Jesus followers, we can do it. We can walk like he walked, humbly before God and others, because you know what he promises in James 4.10? He promises at the right time, when everything gets its proper evaluation in the future, he says, then I'll exalt you. 
But then Jesus cools his critics' jets with this devastating rejoinder. Listen to what he says. He says, which of you on the Sabbath doesn't untie his animal so he can drink? And yet here, you object to a human being, a fellow Israelite no less, a daughter of Abraham being untied from Satan. And as Jesus speaks... It is immediately clear to everybody that he is absolutely correct. Of course, everyone agrees. Everyone unties their animals on the Sabbath. And everyone is right to do so because it's compassionate. And it meets an obvious need. Well, if everyone naturally recognizes the rightness of untying a thirsty animal, I mean, how can anyone object to somebody untying a thirsty human, a human being thirsty for healing and acceptance and friendship. And hearing this, the synagogue ruler and his cronies are absolutely silenced. They're put to shame. There's nothing they can say to rebut what Jesus has said. On the other hand, the crowds rejoice. This is a great story. What do we learn from it? Can I suggest this? Nothing is more important than people experiencing the loving, liberating love of Jesus. Let me say it again. Nothing is more important than people experiencing the liberating love of Jesus. Nothing in the church takes priority over that. That's why we exist. Think about it. Jesus stops a service. Jesus interrupts his own sermon to bring rescue to somebody who needs it. Nothing is of higher priority than all people. People who have some kind of inkling of their need for cleansing and renewal and people who don't. There's nothing more important than everybody experiencing the liberating love of Jesus, the Son of God, the one who left heaven, took on flesh, giving up all divine prerogatives in the process in order to, Luke 4, 18, set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now back to the Sabbath issue. When the ruler of the synagogue reacts angrily, I think it's possible, it's possible that he is genuinely concerned about the law. Possible. It's possible that in sincerity he longs to guard proper Sabbath observance. But you know what? I doubt it. I don't think that was it at all. After all, just like everyone else, he unties his ox on the Sabbath day. He certainly doesn't deny doing so when Jesus makes the charge. But even more importantly, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He's a Bible guy. And he very likely knows that the point of the Sabbath, at least part of it, is to celebrate God's freedom. Get this, Deuteronomy 5.5, just before the Lord through Moses reissues the Sabbath command, he gives the rationale. He explains the logic of the Sabbath. Listen to this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Get this. Therefore... The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is a freedom celebration. And therefore, can it be possible that the God of the Exodus, the God of freedom, 
could possibly resent granting freedom <laughs> on the day in which freedom is celebrated. No, I think this is a smokescreen. You know what I think's going on here? Do you know what I think is far more likely the reason for his peak? His comfort is disturbed. His sense of propriety. His sense of control. After all, he's the ruler of the synagogue. And suddenly this new prophetic kid in town comes on the scene and he scrambles up the whole service order. And I think that the synagogue ruler here objects to the liberating love of Jesus coming to this woman who obviously needs it because it's inconvenient for him. That's what's going on here. You could say it this way. He's a Hundley. Any Curious George fans here? He's Hundley. There are some in the back. That's good. He's Hundley. He doesn't like the neat lobby of his worship service getting messed up. How does this challenge us? I think this way. Here at Hillside Friends, let's always make the ministry of liberation, which is another way of talking about light bearing, let's always make it our top priority here. And let's always be willing to flex to extend it. The truth is we're doing this, but let's keep doing it. Let's, do, let's think of it this way. Let's put a powder keg under all of our pettiness. Let's bust a cap on our comfort and our control. You know, when out-of-town friend, friends ask me about Hillside Covenant, do you know what I say? I say it over and over again. I talk about how big-hearted and how high-minded and how magnanimous you are. I say it over and over again. New pastor friend of mine told me recently about an instance of pettiness in his church that honestly shocked me. It involved somebody positively incinerating a young pastoral assistant. I mean, turning a verbal flamethrower on him, verbally, publicly, because of an innocent and really quite insignificant theological blunder. And the person who laid down the fire was a Christian. He was a good Christian in the very worst sense of the term, to quote the great singer-songwriter David Wilcox. And moreover, this young pastor's blunder was most likely due to a language barrier. This guy who was described as having a 10-carat gold heart, serving bivocationally for very little money, was born in another country, and he was still working to perfect his English. And my new pastoral friend who told me this story, he was both hurt and humiliated for this young guy, and he was hacked off. And he said, how can people, how can church people be so mean? And the friend said to me, I know you can relate. And in fact, I can't at all. I can't relate. And this is because you all, Hillside family, are so large-hearted, so forbearing. And so was my last church, by the way. So ill-inclined to put your likes and dislikes over the ministry of liberation, so ill-inclined to put your comfort over people finding Jesus and starting down the narrow road of comprehensive transformation. Having said that, I think 
we should also acknowledge that a ruler of the synagogue spirit is always lurking. It's always ready to possess us. I, I feel it in me. Always ready to make us petty, and more importantly, ready to make our comfort, even our position, over people knowing the healing power of Jesus, which is the most important thing. And what does this come down to? Like Jesus, our teacher, unlike the ruler of the synagogue, in the months and years ahead, let's keep doing what we've done for 77 years. Let's never let our own comfort, let's never let our own preferences, let's never let our own position, whatever we happen to do here, keep us from doing whatever's necessary to realize our be light in the world vision. And let's in always be like Jesus, our master, and not the synagogue ruler, because again, there is nothing more important than people experiencing the liberating love of Jesus. That's why we're here. Now, there's something else in this passage that's absolutely critical. From this passage, we actually get a 3D model of liberation. And as you know, there's a lot of talk in the culture right now about liberation. Everybody is talking about liberation. Everybody's got a liberation package on offer. But as Christians, by liberation, we mean something very, very specific. And we actually find it sketched out in our story first. True liberation means being re-spirited. It's having one's current spirit swapped for God's own spirit. A, a new spirit, which Paul describes as one not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And if you're new this morning, maybe you're in the service today because a hillsider invited you. We want you to know we're so glad you're here. We understand Hillside is a place for people to join the family and explore Jesus with us. But a question for you, wouldn't you like a new spirit? One characterized by power. One characterized by self-control. I mean, think about what this could mean for your relationships. Think about what this could mean for your career. Think about what it could mean to have a new spirit of power and love and self-discipline simply for living the good and giving life that you want to live in your core. You see, people are re-spirited when they believe in Jesus the King. They get a new spirit. That's Ephesians 1.13, which says, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit. So first, true liberation is being re-spirited, just like the woman in our story. Second, true liberation means being rebuilt. Again, Jesus doesn't just cleanse her, does he? He reconstructs her, allowing her to stand up straight and proud and dignified. And what's interesting is the Greek word translated made straight in verse 13 is regularly used in Greek literature to describe the process of rebuilding a building that's crumbled down. Isn't that interesting? Real liberation. I mean the real article. The liberation that Jesus offers. The liberation that we as his ambassadors have been called to share with the world. It involves holistic rebuilding. 
And when it comes to kids and youth, it starts with building and rebuilding their confidence, building and rebuilding them emotionally so they feel good, including helping them to rejoice in and accept their own beautiful biology, whether made in love, male or female. And here at Hillside, let's tell kids the truth and demonstrate it with the way we treat them, that their bodies bestowed upon them by a loving God is no accident. It's a gift. But being rebuilt also means being rebuilt in character so that, among other things, we can be safe for other people to draw close to. I was thinking about that figure skater this past week who commits suicide because the guy, the dance partner she danced with from the time she was a kid, abused her. He wasn't safe to be with, was he? Doesn't that break your heart? I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. He needed Jesus, and he needed to be rebuilt from the inside out so he was safe for people to be with. The Apostle Paul talks about this part of liberation, comprehensive character renewal in 2 Corinthians 7.1, when he says now, and he's talking to people who are in Christ, who are beloved and accepted and marked out for eternal life. He says, now let us work towards complete holiness because we fear God. Lastly, true liberation means being recommissioned. And notice what the woman in our story does after Jesus re-spirits her and rebuilds her. The last three words of verse 13, she glorified God. And friends, a biblical writer cannot use the word glory or the word glorified without evoking Psalm 8, one of the most towering psalms in the whole collection and one of the most important psalms for understanding what this whole thing is about, Psalm 8. But there in verses 5 and 6, the ancient writer rejoices that in creating the human being, God has, Psalm 8, 5, crowned him or crowned her with glory and honor. And then he goes on to say what it means to be crowned with glory in verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. What does this come down to? To be crowned with glory and honor means to image God in the world. To do in the world what he would do. To reflect him like a mirror, which is the reason we were created in the first place. And with this in mind, we can understand what Luke is saying when he says that the woman began to glorify God. He's saying that through her respiriting and then through her rebuilding, she has been recommissioned to her created purpose. Her created purpose to shine a spotlight on the one true God. Her created purpose to be illuminated from within with that same light. And her created purpose to be light in the world. Where have I heard that before? You know, whatever else might be right about it, liberation that doesn't involve restoration to the created purpose, to reflect God in the world through a brand new kind of personhood, 
practical service that the world really recognizes as valuable and gracious talk, without that, it's not liberation. And sometimes when we present Jesus to people, we stop. Before we get to that third critical facet of liberation, because we know that it involves responsibility, and we know that it involves change. It involves sweat. It even involves cooking sometimes, like it did for the men's, like it did for men's ministry leader Ward Ortman yesterday, who got up very, very early to bless and to cook a bacon breakfast for 25 Hillside guys. Thank you, Ward. And when we shy away from that, that true liberation involves recommissioning to being light bearers, we're actually more like the synagogue ruler than Jesus, our teacher, even if that's not our intention. And we're also ironically denying people maybe the best part of Christianity, which is getting to live the very purpose for which God formed us from mud and breathed life into our lungs and set us loose on the earth. Friends, nothing is more important than people experiencing the liberating love of Jesus and what's more, true liberation. Jesus-style liberation, the only liberation that actually liberates, means re-spiriting, rebuilding, and recommissioning. And that's what we're about here. And I am so excited, more excited now after a year and a half, than I was when I got here, to work with you and counsel and staff to fine-tune Hillside into this humming engine that really does deliver that distinct Jesus kind of liberation that he modeled. Let me close this way. Last Monday night, we kicked off our Kingdom Mosaic class, which is phase one of our Micah 6-8 project. It was a really fun night. It was fun. It was stimulating. Randy Fishback brought gourmet cupcakes. It was great before the cupcakes, but man, the cupcakes sealed the deal. <laughs> and by the way, it's not too late to join us for that exploration of biblical justice. And that, that first night was designed as a standalone night. So if you come this Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, you, you, you won't be at any disadvantage. But in last week's class, we were challenged to be willing to do uncomfortable things. And the presenter made a point that I can't stop thinking about. He said, nothing great has ever been accomplished for God that did not require somebody doing something uncomfortable. Is that profound? Nothing great has ever been accomplished for God that did not require somebody doing something uncomfortable. And friends, helping the people around us, starting with our own neighborhood, right here, know the liberating love of Jesus, it's going to require us to do some uncomfortable things. And most basically, it's going to require us to do what Jesus did with the woman in the story. Just get close to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, but who needs Jesus' liberation, which again means his respiriting, which happens through belief, rebuilding comprehensive character renewal 
and recommissioning. But you know what? We can. We can do the uncomfortable things because we who know Jesus, and that's most of us in this room, have been respirited. We have been filled with the Spirit of the same one who in our story in a little synagogue in Israel stopped the service and stopped everything to liberate somebody in need. Let's pray. Father, what a story. Starring your son, our king, our teacher, our leader, our master, the one we're waiting for, the one we are trying to stay dressed for service for. We want to be like him. And we want our church to be a place where people everywhere in our county, starting with Magnolia and Newell and the streets right around us, experience your rescue and your renewal. We want you to make us more of that than we've ever been before. And we thank you for the progress you've helped us make in getting there. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.